If you want to show your support for the Chicago History Podcast, it is super easy. Check out the link in the show's notes to buy me a coffee or two. Every bit helps to offset production costs. Special thanks to recent contributors Charmaine Germagical, Thomas W.K., Jay, Nate, and Adam. Much appreciated. It's that creepy time of the year when all these Chicago history fans start requesting dark tales from Chicago's bygone era. Today I have a number of those stories, so please allow me to present Chicago's Ghoulish Past, Part 2. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. While not terribly gross, these stories may be upsetting to some and are not recommended for delicate listeners. Discretion is advised. There is so much unsettling stuff that has happened in this amazing city, and I'm not talking about politics. hey Here are some stories that may make your skin crawl or wonder just what the heck people were thinking back in the day. While Lakeview is one of Chicago's 77 official community areas, it was originally considered a suburb north of Chicago. The state of Illinois officially incorporated it as Lakeview Township in 1857 and as a city in 1887. Two years later, in 1889, it was officially annexed by Chicago. One year before becoming part of Chicago proper, Lakeview residents would cower behind locked doors, fearful of being the next victim of the Vampire of Lakeview. In the fall of 1888, a man named Samuel Patton, described as a reputable mechanic, claimed he had not only witnessed a vampire moving about Lakeview, he had developed a glass which would allow people to see the vampire during its nightly excursions in the area. A Judge Thalstrom, regarded as an authority on supernatural subjects, supported Patton's claims, saying that Patton's experiences were similar to those of a Mr. Horace Ray of Griswold, Connecticut, in 1846. Horace Ray died of consumption, what we now refer to as tuberculosis. Soon after, Two of his children died of the same illness. Eight years later, a third child died. All were buried in the local cemetery. Neighbors of the Ray family became convinced the family would return as vampires and got so worked up by this fear, they exhumed the bodies of the father and his three children in May of 1854 and burned their corpses, lest they become creatures of the night. There were doubters in the crowd listening to this tale, including a worker at a nearby lumberyard who pounded his fist on the table and shouted, It's all humbug! Judge Thalstrom continued sharing tales of faraway countries, of those killed who came back to life, and of the many bodies found without a single drop of blood remaining inside them. The Lakeview area residents were convinced and lined up to buy the glass that would allow them to see the vampire and avoid it. 
more than one month passed without any additional sightings of the vampire of Lakeview. That is until the first Friday in November when a Mrs. Cleus Larson at 1538 West Otto Street became concerned that her husband had not returned home. Cleus Larson, described in news reports as, quote, a mild and inoffensive Swede, hold on, I'm writing that down as a possible title for my autobiography, never came home that night. It was a cold, clear night, and Mrs. Larson kept vigil all night long without a sign of her husband. When morning came, Mrs. Larson hurried to her neighbors, whose only response as to what happened to Cleus was the vampire. Word quickly spread among the community that the vampire of Lakeview had taken the inoffensive Swede. Neighbors searched for the man, tracing his whereabouts the night before to a saloon on North Clark Street, where the proprietor said Mr. Larson seemed maudlin, as though he anticipated his own impending doom. Larson kept making references to a bat. At the foot of a tree on North Halstead, a car conductor found a jacket covered in patches, which Mrs. Larson identified as her husband's. All day long, searchers looked for Larson. A blood-covered boot was found on Diversi. A group of boys, all under the age of 10, came together calling themselves Vampire Hunters. Saturday faded away with no sign of Clay's Larson. On early Sunday morning, an exhausted Mrs. Larson showed up at the police station and shared the story of her husband's disappearance. An entry was made in the usual style. Name of party, Clayus Larson, age 46. Cause of disappearance, a vampire. All anyone could talk about that morning in Lakeview was the vampire. Attendance at the local churches was light. Everyone stayed home to gossip about Clayus Larson falling victim to the vampire. As the sun began to set on Otto Street that Sunday, a figure appeared on the doorstep of the Larson home. Mrs. Larson opened the door and nearly fainted. It was her husband, Cleus, alive and well. As reported in the Tribune, quote, the vampire had given up its prey. A day later, Clays Larson was meek and contrite. When asked about the vampire, he admitted he didn't know anything about that. Even in 1888, he had the most Chicago response as to where he was. He had been out drinking. Time got away from him. Otto Street would later be renamed Henderson Street. In October of 1913, word began to spread around Chicago of the birth of a devil child. Yep, it's true. At a time when the city had a population north of 2.2 million people, one paper reported, quote, Great excitement reigns among less enlightened. Baby has horns and a tail. Here's how one Chicago paper said the story of the devil child came to be. An Italian woman living on the west side of Chicago was on her deathbed. With the end seemingly near, her husband, a man of faith, 
pleaded with his wife, the mother to seven of his children, to pray with him. She refused, denying the existence of the Almighty. Not wanting to see his wife die while railing against God, the husband called a priest to her bedside to try to convert her before it was too late. The priest entered the room, sitting down near her bedside. He showed the dying woman a picture of the crucifixion. She stared at it blankly, with a cold, cynical look. Then she laughed bitterly. Take it away, she said, at first quietly, before getting louder. Take it away. I would sooner have a devil in my house. The room suddenly grew dark. A streak of red light shined into the room. The woman's husband and the priest stood shocked, staring at the light. An expression of fear and horror washed over the woman's face. She tried to close her eyes tightly, but was oddly fascinated by the red light glowing in the room. Moments later, the red light faded, but the room stayed strangely dark. It was then the three people in the room, the dying woman, the husband, and the priest, saw the strange figure lying on the bed near the woman. The woman shrieked in terror at the sight of the figure which appeared to be a half-devil, half-child. The man from the church dropped to his knees and began to pray. The husband began to moan and cry hysterically, screaming, Kill that thing! Great God, why have you done this to me? Kill it, I say! The priest continued to pray. The woman cried in fright, and the husband, frantic with grief, grabbed a club and approached the side of the bed. As he raised the club to strike the creature, the strange being suddenly stood up and stared at the husband. The man stopped, spellbound by the creature in front of him. For a moment, the room was silent. Suddenly, the devil child pointed a finger at the husband and then spoke with a voice unlike anything the three in the room had ever heard before. You wanted a devil and you got one. Kill me and you'll have six more like me. In some retellings of the story, when the creature spoke, the husband fainted. In other versions, he dropped dead. The story of the devil child grew around town. Soon, Chicagoans wanted to know more. They wanted to see the woman and the devil baby. They wanted to know whether the husband was still alive. This story was not limited to Chicago papers. News outlets like the Express and Standard in Newport, Vermont, even carried word of the devil child. The directors of the Chicago Academy of Sciences and officials at the Art Institute fielded questions not about whether the stories of the devil child were true, but where people could see it. Somehow word spread that the devil child and the Italian woman were staying at Hull House, the settlement founded by Jane Addams on the near west side of Chicago. At all times of the day and night, there were knocks at the door of the Hull House with lines of people demanding to see the devil child. Hundreds of people came to Hull House for a peek at this mythical creature. The first Jane Addams heard of all this was when a German woman showed up at the door a few weeks before the crowds began to arrive. The woman asked to see, quote, the funny devil child, 
telling Adams that someone told her a woman in the neighborhood had given birth to the creature and that she was too afraid to keep it, so she dropped it off at Whole House. The German woman also heard that by donating a quarter to Whole House, the women there would let visitors see the devil child. Jane Adams was not having any part of it, reportedly responding sternly, Do you think I would show a child for money a poor little deformed baby? One newspaper reported that 10,000 callers had inquired about the devil child claiming nothing in years has so caught the imagination of the city. Before Al Capone and the Mafia's reign of terror in Chicago during Prohibition, there were the Black Hand Gangs. Although a looser concept than the Mafia, with many different gangs in different states, the Black Hand mainly originated in the Italian cities of Sicily and Calabria before coming stateside. Their criminal tactics were pretty straightforward. Members would send extortion notes to their intended victims with a Black Hand symbol. If the recipients did not pay up for protection, they were often subject to beatings, having their place of business bombed, or even shot and killed as a warning to others. One of the key Black Hand criminals was Salvatore Cardinella, who also went by Sam Cardinelli. Cardinella and his crew were allegedly responsible for robberies of hundreds of Chicago places, including hotels, speakeasies, and more, primarily in the city's Little Italy neighborhood, starting in 1915. Oh shoot, I almost forgot. Cardinella went by the nickname Il Diavolo, or The Devil, adding an extra level of creepiness. On June 24, 1919, four and possibly as many as seven men, depending on the source, entered a saloon at 447 West 22nd Street, now called Cermak, in what is part of present-day Chinatown. Before they left with $2,000 from the register, they had wounded a customer named Benjamin J. Wendell and killed the saloon owner, 58-year-old Andrew P. Bowman. Chicago police were quickly on the trail of the killers with the aid of a description of the men and their getaway car by two women they passed as they fled, and soon most of the men were rounded up. Santo Orlando, suspected of being the getaway driver for the crew, later offered to squeal, as the papers called it, on his cohorts as his car had been identified in the robbery slash murder. Orlando was later found dead in a drainage canal near Lockport, Illinois, having been shot in the head and neck. Based on the condition of his body, it appeared Orlando had been in the water for more than a week. It was thought he was killed by his own men to keep him from giving up details about the crew. Sam Cardinella was eventually tied to the robbery and murder and arrested by Chicago police. Although he was not president at the time of the robbery and killing, he was deemed responsible and sentenced to hang. After sentencing, Cardinella began to do something his guards at the jail found curious. He refused food. 
Was he preparing for a hunger strike? Was he so fearful of the great beyond he lost his appetite? Cardinelli became feverish and hostile toward those around him. Ten days before he was due to hang, jailers received word of a possible escape plan and searched Cardinella's cell. They uncovered a small bottle containing one ounce of pure nitroglycerin on the ledge outside his window, easily within his reach. Officials said the amount of nitroglycerin, if properly used, could have wrecked part of the building and led to the devil's escape. Five days before Cardinella's scheduled hanging, two members of his crew tried to save their old boss from their own jail cells. Leonard Crapo, horrible name, and Tony Sanson, both serving life sentences at Joliet's prison, signed affidavits exonerating Cardinella from any of the crimes attributed to the gang. Officials weren't having any part of it. Henry Barrett Chamberlain, operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission, was quoted as saying, It would be a miscarriage of justice for this man to go free. Even though his hand may never have held the revolver that killed any of his gang's victims, the evidence showed he had a part in the murders, end quote. Although the affidavits didn't work, Cardinella had another plan to beat death. Well, not exactly. Cardinella was going to rise from the dead. On the day before his hanging was to take place, Cardinella's wife and six young children came to visit him. This key member of the Black Hand, likely responsible for 150 burglaries, 100 holdups, and 20 murders, stood weeping as his children gathered around his knees. Cardinella spoke to his wife in a quick Italian dialect, one that none of the guards understood. The only word the guards could make out was... Viana. Nicholas Viana called the choir boy, was 18 when he met Sam Cardinella, and Viana quickly fell under Il Diavolo's spell, becoming part of Cardinella's Black Hand crew, robbing and murdering on command. Viana was eventually arrested, convicted, and hanged for his crimes. Viana's hanging happened four months earlier, so why would Cardinella mention Viana now? The night before he was due to swing, Sam Cardinella paced the floor of his cell, which was on the Dearborn side of the jail, directly behind the warden's office. The double detail of guards keeping a close eye on him tried to calm him, but he did not want to speak to anyone. On the morning of April 15, 1921, Cardinella was asked what he would like for his breakfast as his last meal. Around the corner was a restaurant run by a man named Stein who routinely made meals for prisoners facing their final hours. Cardinella refused the offer. Thinking back on all the meals missed during Cardinella's incarceration, one of the guards said, quote, He has lost 40 pounds since he was sentenced. As Cardinella was brought to the hangman's noose, he suddenly threw himself at the feet of the priests there to offer counsel crying out wildly while kissing their shoes and clutching himself tightly against their knees. This spectacle of anguish made the guards 
who had seen much during their employee at the jail, shudder. Lying on the floor, the man feared as the devil was inconsolable and would not rise to his feet. The jailers lifted him and tied him to his chair, carrying the seated Cardinella into position. Cardinella kept his head lowered while the hangman fitted his neck with the noose that would end his life. At 10.26 a.m., the drop was sprung. And the devil, still strapped to the chair, fell through the trap. Twelve attending physicians pronounced him dead six minutes later. Cardinella's body was brought to the mortuary room in the basement of the jail and out to the jail's yard, where an ambulance was waiting to accept it. As the stretcher from the ambulance approached the body of the devil and the waiting guards, one of the jail attendants noticed something odd. Inside the ambulance was a woman wearing a nurse's uniform, but instead of an undertaker, one of the two men in the ambulance appeared to be a doctor. As he helped the crew load the body onto the stretcher, the attendant felt hot water bottles under a blanket covering the pad on which the body was placed, an odd thing to have to transport a corpse. Lorenz Meisterheim, the deputy of the warden, entered the room moments later and was informed of these peculiarities. Meisterheim felt along the blanket and also noticed the hot water bottles. The deputy warden sized up the situation and said quietly to his men, Keep them waiting. After an hour's delay, the body was permitted to be taken away. As it was loaded into the ambulance, Meisterheim saw something unexpected. The nurse began to rub the dead man's cheeks and wrists, and the man dressed like a doctor prepared a syringe. The Chicago police were summoned to pull the car over, which they did quickly. They ordered the ambulance crew to deliver the body of Sam Cardinella to a nearby morgue. Upon inspecting the ambulance, they found out it did not contain hot water bottles, but a complete rubber mattress filled with hot water. There was also an oxygen tank, a large battery, hypodermic syringes, and other tools that might aid in an effort to help the man known as the devil rise from the dead. All of Cardinella's activities leading up to the hanging became more clear to officials. In his mind, once hanged, Cardinella couldn't be tried and hanged again, so all he needed to do was survive the hanging. He refused food so that he would lose weight, thus making him less heavy when the trap was sprung. By refusing to stand and being strapped to the chair for his hanging, he reduced the distance of his fall by an estimated 19 inches. By leaning his head forward, he may have been able to steady the rope against his jaw. While most prisoners facing death by hanging would likely prefer the quick snap of their neck, the devil hoped to stave off death as long as he could while his team tried to resuscitate him. But in the end, Il Daviolo could not avoid the Grim Reaper. 
Sam Cardinella and his gang were the subject of the 1929 novel Little Caesar, which was adapted into the 1930 film starring Edward G. Robinson as a Cardinella-type figure. Chicago's own Ernest Hemingway wrote a brief piece about the execution of Cardinella in the 1924 book of short stories called In Our Time. But what about the name Viana, spoken to Cardinella's wife? What did that mean? In December of 1920, Nicholas the choir boy Viana was hanged in a very similar fashion to Cardinella. His body was greeted by a nearly exact ambulance setup with a woman dressed as a nurse, hot water mattress, doctor instead of an undertaker, and syringes full of stimulant to jolt his heart back into rhythm. Viana's body was delivered quickly and without question. The ambulance was taken to a building two blocks from jail where an elaborate effort toward resuscitating Viana began. If the team was successful, they would repeat the effort in a few months' time when Cardinella was scheduled to hang. After a time, Viana's eyelids began to flutter, and with a soft, guttural moan, he began to come back to life. The experiment, it would seem, was a success. Unfortunately for Viana, before his final day at the jail, he had squealed to officials in a fruitless effort to save his own life. He had broken the oath to his gang, and such a traitorous act would not be forgiven. A nod from the head of the gang's crew that night signaled the second end to the life of Nicholas Viana. Listening to today's episode titled Chicago's Ghoulish Past, part two. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to items related to Chicago's amazing history in the show's notes if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thank you, John. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.